Hello and welcome to the Lessons from Lab and Life podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Morrison, and I hope that our podcast offers you some new perspective. Today, our podcast focuses on the importance of STEM outreach programs in communities around the world. Joining me today is my colleague, Alicia Bielik, who's a very active member of the New England Biolabs Educational Committee. Thanks for helping me out with the podcast today, Alicia. Thanks for inviting me. Alicia and I had the opportunity to interview some really inspiring individuals, like Stephen Farber from the Carnegie Institute in Baltimore, Maryland, who founded BioEyes, which is a program that offers students hands-on experience studying the life cycle of zebrafish. His program is incredible. And Mahmoud Bukhar Mena, who founded the Trend Outreach Program in SciComm, Nigeria, both of which help connect scientists to the public and promote local research and science stories. It's amazing what Mahmoud has accomplished with his programs. And lastly, Daniel Hyde, who established the Xenoplex STEM Center in the Black Forest area of Germany. The Xenoplex STEM Center is a resource for high school students that offers mentoring programs for students interested in science. Thank you all so much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So we'll start with Stephen. Stephen, could you tell us uh, about the BioEyes program? Sure. BioEyes is an outreach program to excite K-12 children about science and the experimental method and really give them a sense for what scientists do every day using live animals. It's also not just from the kids' perspective. We're training teachers to think and act like scientists because if they don't really understand science, it's harder for them to teach science, especially early childhood uh, teachers who teach elementary school-level kids. So are your programs specifically designed for elementary school children? Um, they're designed for um, at all levels. We have pre-K, third grade, fifth grade, middle school, and high school. And I, and I, I, I neglected to mention that BioEyes, in every city it's active, and when we founded it, is always associated with an active scientist. So my main job, of course, is running a lab of 8 to 12 people that is interested in uh, zebrafish biology and uh, specifically lipid metabolism as a model to study cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes. So that's what I do a lot of the time. But what makes BioEyes special is it's it's connected to an outreach effort to train the next generation. Is it hard to identify scientists in areas around the country or around the world who want to participate in the program? Well, Surprisingly, it's not that hard. I think the bigger challenge is funding the effort because our model, because being a scientist is pretty tough in and of itself, you need an assistant, if you will, or an educator to work with the scientists because it's not sustainable to just have a scientist bear all that responsibility. So every city that launches a BioEyes effort has an educator. And uh, so there isn't a problem finding zebrafish researchers that are really into it. They next run into the challenge, okay, well, how can I get the institutional resources to hire, like, one person? And that's always a mix of some local foundations, maybe some institutional help. But once they have a person, that person works with the scientists, brings the teachers on, and helps deliver the content in the classroom, and it's using live zebrafish. Mamu, could you tell us a little bit about your program? Um, Yeah, sure. So um, I was born and raised in Nigeria, and uh, you know I went through the schooling system. And uh, in 2011, I moved to the UK. So going there actually, you know, made me see the entirely different system, and uh, the support available for uh, science is entirely different. 
So I started this uh, program in which I target students, uh, teachers, but as well as the members of the public and the decision makers. And the idea is that growing up as, as a young boy, you know, going to school, it was difficult to really, you know, find role models. And also the teaching in the classroom wasn't as exciting. So that's why, you know, I feel like this program needs to, uh, you know, reach out to students, inspire them. But at the same time, you want to be able to get to the teachers as well because you want it to be sustained. So that's why we organize activities for teachers as well to reinvigorate their passion and their skills for for teaching science. But at the same time, the problem with, uh, with science in Africa is that the public doesn't really support science because of the high level of misconception, uh, you know, that could be religious and cultural. Mm. And also decision makers also uh, are not doing that great. So, I mean, it's quite ambitious and quite big, but I thought as someone who went through that system and saw it done differently, uh, the best way to tackle it or to contribute to the problem is to uh, organize this program where we have these things being tackled. And I, th I guess, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, in a way, because we've got a lot of people involved. So, for example, you know, we've got about 30 people as part of the outreach program. In Nigeria alone, we have over 20 people. In other African countries, we've got lots of people, so close to 80 to 90, I would say. So what we do basically is, okay, as a scientist, uh, you know, if you have more access to students, for example, you know, you know, I we encourage you, why don't you organize your activities, you know, tailored towards you know, the uh, people you have access to. Yeah, and if you have access to teachers, that or if you have access to other you know uh, audience so uh, it's quite flexible in terms of what people do but particularly what I do you know is to target these different uh, um, class of individuals through different activities outreach science festivals and uh, teachers workshop yeah and how many outreach activities does your group do in a year well, well I think in the last six years we probably organized uh, more than, I would say, 40 to 50. And uh, uh, every year, at least in Nigeria, I know that we do have at least six programs. So in other countries, you know, depending, obviously, and I agree with uh, what has been mentioned earlier, funding is a big issue. So it all depends on also the funding available. But at least in a year for the whole program, we do have at least eight or nine in a year. And do you find that um, community members uh, become really active participants in it and continue to support it um, through future years? Or, or do people sort of participate in one activity and move on? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, you know, in, uh, in the last few years, I've seen a lot of change, uh, which is quite positive. People are beginning to appreciate it and uh, are becoming supportive, and I hope that this will continue. So, uh, and this is why I think it's really important when doing this kind of activities to have people who also belong to uh, a category of individuals to kind of engage them. And especially in Africa, this is important because uh, of the high level of misconceptions that could be religious and cultural. So if I'm a uh, Muslim, for example, you know, uh, and uh, people see me, you know, en enhancing uh, science or trying to encourage people to embrace science, people tend, would like to accept that more than if I wasn't. So that, uh, you know, trust is also key and the kind of 
people then you reach out to is really important. So I think uh, the fact that I am from the community and I have been, uh, I was born and raised there, really had an influence on the uh, success that we're having so far. That's great. Daniel, could you tell us about uh, the Xenoplex project? Yeah, of course. So um, that project started a long time ago. It was when I started to do it, it was in my final high school year. And we faced the issue, we wanted to do science, but we were in a black forest in Germany. That's not a scientific area. And there was no way to do a scientific project. And so I and some colleagues, we decided to set up a club to support these kind of projects. And then we need to build up a lab. So in the first step, this was a garage. So we had a garage, but nothing inside. So we need to grow the lab. We need to find some supporters. We had kind, we were kind, kind of successful. We had students working in there. They got some prizes in national and European competitions, and we were fascinated how the students liked this, yeah, this opportunity we gave them, and this was really great to see how they evolved over the time during this project. And so we grow the lab and we moved from the garage to a lab we built ourselves in a big industry hall. This lab was then BSL-1 classified, so we could do genetics, genome editing, genetic engineering. And we got a lot of more projects, um, more students involved. And as this was very successful in the context of life sciences, many more others engaged in the project and we finally established Xenoplex, that's a supra-regional STEM center, recently opened in January 2019. And there we, it's a new building, and there we cover many more disciplines than just life sciences. There are informatics, mechanics, mathematics, physics. So that's a great opportunity for all science enthusiasts in the southern Germany. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like you have, have a really broad offering of um, educational opportunities there. What, how, how many staff members do you have that service that? It's mostly, uh, we don't have that much stuff. So we started as a small initiative, just students and teachers and we're running this life science lab completely based on people working there in, in their free time and for this new building the Xenoplex we have teachers working there and we have one uh, person responsible for the administration and supervision of the lab but that's of course not enough so in order to expand our our activities we need funding for mm -hmm people working for us. Yeah, and how, so how many students do you service at that conference? So uh, I service the students in the life science area and during the last six years I supervised about 20 projects of one to three students in a project. But uh, my colleagues, they, some have robotic classes with whole classes, they have biology projects with whole classes, so it's strongly dependent on the project, how, pe how many people are involved. Mm. It sounds like a lot of um, personal attention that someone wouldn't be able to have access to in another scenario. 
Yeah, it, it's a lot of personal involvement, and the great thing is um, my first students from the first years of our project are now the mentors for the younger students. So we are also shaping mentors for future generations. That must be so rewarding to see that sort of cycle of That um, cycle growth. is so great, <laughs> and my co-head lab, uh, lab head was my former student, and it's really great to run the lab together with him. Well, that's awesome. Um, so, Mahmoud, I wanted to ask you, how does your program help foster interest in um, science and technology education? Um, so, uh, basically, because, uh, in a way, the program tries to connect scientists, the students, and the public, we have a range of, you know, uh, scientists, you know, doing research in different disciplines. So, it could be, you know, um, but neuroscience, you know, you know, engineering, and um, other different disciplines. So uh, by kind of having such broad, uh, you know, experts, you know, you are not just enhancing, you know, people's awareness about, say, medical sciences as well as inspiring people to pursue career in that, but you also have others doing in area of engineering, mathematics, and also uh, in the science festivals that we organize, you know, we usually kind of uh, invite schools to select a student and uh, you know a group of students to come up with some uh, you know ideas to organize to uh, develop something, and uh, you know we they send us the these ideas and uh, if it is successful we invite them to the science festival and we invite experts to come and review those things. So often when you get students doing uh, are in the area of uh, physics, engineering, you know mathematics, chemistry, you know. So uh, I think uh, the fact that the science festivals also bring uh, members of the public and other students from other schools, it helps in showing them the different things that can be done in STEM, and that way helping to um, foster that uh, particular discipline or different disciplines. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I know um, when I was when I was in school before I went to graduate school, you know, I would think of a scientist as someone wearing a lab coat and goggles and working at a bench, but I think that there's a lot of um, different and unique disciplines in science, such as bioinformatics mm -hmm. um, and a lot of mathematics and engineering that can work into science now, too, so it's really great to be able to expose um, the community to the really broad opportunities that um, the world of science encapsulates. Definitely. So, Daniel, I wanted to ask you, um, your program is very unique, and it's slightly different than just the traditional school model. So um, do you think that your program offers something that's missing in traditional education, that it's complementary to it, adds to just the traditional schooling in some way? Yeah, definitely, because in the traditional school system, there is no space for creativity, for own ideas. So there are some projects you can do in school, but it's very limited, and when people have ideas, want to make own things, then it's very important to give them the space to do so. And if people, uh, if students are really interested in science, we should give them the space, and that's what we are offering. So we give them space to do research on their own ideas. And do you work with um, local schools yeah, or national definitely. schools to find the students, or do they find you on their own? Or? Some of them find us on our own, and some, and we go to schools, promote our what we offer them. We also have lab courses, then they can have a first dive into the lab world, get connected to it. If they like it, then they can maybe do an another module 
like the, maybe they start with just extracting DNA or um, PCR-based analysis, then they want to do something with CRISPR and then they decide, wow, that's what I want to do and I have an idea and now I want to do my own project. Yeah, it's, it's excellent. The collaboration with the local schools the is The collaboration really is very key. important and also the collaboration with the teachers mm -hmm. because they identify the talents and they, yeah, they need to shape an environment where they can have this access to science or engage them. And are you primarily working with upper level students, high school level students, or? Yeah, I'm primarily working with high school students due to um, restrictions for genetically projects in by law. Um, but we also have um, advisors in our STEM center that work with uh, elementary school, middle school students. So there is a wide variety of scientific offers. Yeah, it's excellent. <coughs> Stephen, I wanted to ask you, um, why do you feel it's so important? I think you know, we, we might already know why, but I'd love to hear a little bit more detail as to why um, your program and programs like yours are so important to have available to young scientists. Because um, I know that you span all the way through the grades from right. pre-kindergarten up to high school, but um, no, there really is a large focus in that. It's pre-K to postdoc. Yeah. Um, but I think what Daniel and Mahmood and, and, and I are saying is it's, it's a, the theme is it's collaboration with teachers, right? It's engaging at all levels, and it's urgent because society is increasingly one that requires analytic skills. We don't necessarily want everyone to be a scientist, but we're at a time where people have to understand what makes something more true or less true without diving right now into the political realities in the United States, there's widely held views that you just believe what you can find on the internet or you listen to people that say things that you like to hear. But what we all do every day is exactly different than that. We might want something to be true. We go to the lab and it doesn't show, turn out to be true. So that means we everything that we do... and. Everything in this room, every cell phone, microphone, technology, computers, the internet was created with a scientific method of experimentation, incremental study. That's what created all of this. So I think it's urgent across the entire globe. We face serious challenges that every child needs to understand how to think analytically and to evaluate reality, which is increasingly technological. So I think, and the second point on this is, in my lab, we're trying to tackle really difficult problems. 25% of the world is dying of cardiovascular disease, and obesity is hitting every country in a big way. We have kids now that are developing adult-onset diabetes. I mean, this is their life trajectory of healthcare costs is phenomenal, right? So we have real challenges that are complex, and we need a diverse group of people from all walks of life to want to be interested in the topic. And so before they come to my lab, they're in the schools. And if they're not being fostered to think about scientific problems, where is the next generation of scientific leaders going to come from to deal with all these big problems that the generation before us and this generation is continuing to make? <laughs> so I, I, I feel it's not an exaggeration to say there's a sense of urgency. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I think we're... Um, exactly what you're saying is that 
we need to increase STEM literacy across all ages, and it's probably raising both their attitudes and their aptitudes of the students, correct? You know, you want, you want them to understand that literacy and science and technology and engineering, but also the attitude towards it. It's actually at the heart of having an open society is the ability to challenge and question and to explore. So we are, so I do think societies had periods of great growth during the Renaissance, and we've had periods where the public has burnt the libraries down, and we've had periods of the Dark Ages. These cycles of human experience are no joke, and that happens sometimes when scientists become one component is they lose touch with where everyday folks are at. So I think we as scientists have to remember that it's like part of our job. We cannot give up. We have to reach everyday folks and and up their competencies because it's, it you know, um, we depend on a functioning society. And when societies stop functioning, it's a much bigger problem than doing science or getting the next grant. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all probably couldn't agree more. So, Mahmoud, you originally started working with um, Trend in Africa, and um, you've moved on to the project, the SciCom Nigeria mm-hmm. project. Um, what do you think has been key to your program's success over the last couple of years? Um, so, I still work with uh, Trend in Africa. Um, I'm the outreach coordinator, uh, directing outreach in different countries. But uh, the main reason why, for example, I suggest SciCom Nigeria is because of enhancing visibility of scientists. But in terms of success, I think, um, like I mentioned earlier, it's really important to be able to uh, uh, to, 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 to engage people uh, as well as be aware of what they want to, uh, where they're coming from. So, for example, uh, you know, I, I was born and raised in Africa, and I went through the same thing. So it's important to be able to identify with people in some aspects of my project. So, for example, like I said, I'm a Muslim, and I, you know, it's important to be able to dispel misconceptions associated with religion, even though I do know that you know, there are misconceptions. So I think being part of that has helped a lot because it enable people to connect with what I say and also to uh, disregard their uh, or, you know, long misconception, misconceptions around uh, science. And I think the second issue has to do with the fact that I, I work with a lot of different scientists. So if you are working alone, it's almost impossible to be able to do a lot. But because I kind of work with scientists that I help to direct them to do some activities, it means within a short time we could achieve a lot. So in Nigeria, for example, in a year, like I said earlier, we could have up to eight activities, six activities, and in other African countries could also have more of that. And the more people that do it, the more to reach. And uh, yeah, that's why I think as of now we've been able to reach out to at least 5,000. I mean, personally, I've been able to reach out to at close to 1,000 people. So. I think that has been critical to the success. That's incredible. So it's really the adoption of the community members um, and spreading the word. And I think, um, and I think you said so the likeness, the likeness that people can associate um, themselves with those same community members yeah. makes it easier to absolutely, adopt those visions. Absolutely, because people would uh, likely, you know, listen and agree with what 
someone from their own community said who and that person if he's a scientist it means that they would believe him much better than someone coming from elsewhere but i mean it depends again here on the audience so this applies to the members of the public and uh, students but in terms of public uh, policy makers often they don't only want to see someone from the community engaging and saying things about the importance of research but they also want to hear from other experts outside say the community outside you know foreign even you know who they think have the track record of doing research in such areas so i think it depends on the audience in terms of policy you really want people who have a strong track record and often also people that are even not within the community or even the country well, it sounds like um, you're making a big impact, and I think that those are uh, problems, you know, that are maybe more intensified in Africa. But I think that those are things that we can recognize on a global scale as well. Definitely, Daniel, could you tell us where you see um, the Xenoflex Institute in five years? Oh, that's a <laughs> not an easy question, but I hope um, we are still able to grow. To go deeper into the schools, con connect to more students, have a broader coverage of all scientific areas, and I hope we still manage to keep the talents when they are going from high school to university as mentors, so that we still go along this alumni tradition. I want to just thank you all for your efforts um, in STEM outreach and in reaching out particularly to young children. Um, I actually, I grew up in rural Maine, and my parents sent me to a science camp when I was about 10 years old, and I think that that probably opened my eyes to really opportunities that wouldn't have been available to me if I hadn't accepted that early in my life. Um, and so I think that uh, the work that you're doing is, is extremely meaningful, um, and the teachers that you're training um, to speak to children in different ways um, and to offer them different opportunities in the world of science um, magnifies all your efforts, you know, hundreds fold. So thank you guys so much. Thank you, for, thank having you for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast. I hope that you feel as thankful as I do for the dedication of Stephen, Mahmoud, and Daniel to introducing the broader community around the world to scientists and scientific research. As always, check out the transcript of this podcast for lots of links to learn more about these STEM outreach programs. Be sure to tune in next time when I'll be joined by another 2019 NEB Passion in Science Award winner, Nathan Shaw, who is bringing antibiotic resistance to point-of-care testing. <laughs>